0: Joshua chapter 10, some great lessons for us in Joshua today. We're not going to cover the whole chapter, just uh, a little bit of it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer first. Lord, it's been wonderful thus far to be in your house this morning. So good to just be in your presence and to be with your people. Really, Lord, it's been wonderful. And now we're just excited about that portion where you instruct us, where you open your word up to us, where you give us understanding, insight, discernment, wisdom, knowledge, where your Holy Spirit comes and works through your Holy Word to make us more like you. We look forward to these times. And Lord, some of us in this body are engaged in the battle of our lives, Lord. Some of us just have radical things going on overwhelming circumstances, but we believe that you're a God of miracles. We believe that you're a God who's bigger than this world, who's bigger than all the drama of it, who's able to deal with anything that comes our way. And so Lord, we bring all those things to you today. We bring our dramas and our successes and our failures and our victories and our difficulties. We bring them to you and just say, Lord, work in our lives. We invite you and your redeeming work into our lives. And as we look at this historical account of this battle with Israel coming up against the enemies, we just ask that you'd instruct us through history and through your living word and that you, Holy Spirit, make application to our hearts. Make this a very profitable time in your word for teaching for correcting, for rebuking, and for training us in righteousness. Holy Spirit, do these things. We ask you together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, you guys remember from last week, chapter 9, that Joshua got deceived. You'll remember the Gibeonites came, and they were aware of two things. They were aware of, number one, that their city was slated next for destruction in the conquest of the land of the Israelites. And number two, they were aware that Moses... Had instructed the Israelites in the Word of God in Deuteronomy seven that the Israelites were not to make any covenants or treaties with any inhabitants of the land, and so the Gibeonites came up with this little scheme. They they disguised themselves and they deceived Joshua into disobeying the Word of God. And we drew parallels, didn't we, about how the enemy works in our lives as Christians. And tremendous parallels about the stratagem of the Gibeonites and the stratagem of Diablo in our own lives. And we drew some insight from that. And hopefully your life's been different this week. But Joshua fell to deception. He didn't have to remember that his major failure was he did not inquire of the Lord. He simply failed to come and say, God, what do you think about this? God, is this real? Is this false? Literally, he did not inquire of the mouth of the Lord, the word of God. So we talked about comparing all things to God's word and letting that be the standard and the litmus test and the measure and the plumb line by which everything else is tested. Joshua fell to deception. But what he did on the heels of failure was wonderful. He did the right thing we talked about the details of the fact that according to everything that he knew the right thing for him at that time was to keep the treaty that he made with the Gibeonites and God honored that and you remember that Joshua assigned them a place in the religious life of Israel that they became those who cut the wood and drew the water for the altar and the worship sacrifices in the tabernacle and what happened was when Joshua did the right thing on the heels of failure He was effectively inviting God into his mess, right? He was getting God involved when he did the right thing according to God's word. He did the wrong thing before, and he made a mess. Okay, God, I've made a mess. Will you please clean it up? Well, the way that we issue that invitation to the Lord is by doing the right thing. That picture of repentance is not just, I'm sorry. It's an about face. He did the wrong thing. He's doing the right thing. The Lord enters into the situation, and the Lord redeems it so beautifully, that's what the Lord does when you invite them into your messes. He'll redeem them and do wonderful things. And so he took then these people, the Gibeonites, who were once far off and who were enemies and made them friends who were near to his presence in the tabernacle of the Lord. And he made them useful in his service. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ does for you and I. Remember that Joshua, Yehoshua in Hebrew, is a picture of Jesus, Yeshua in Hebrew, in the New Testament. Joshua is an Old Testament typology of the person in the ministry of Jesus Christ. And so it's this potent picture of God's redemptive work that he takes us who were once far off and brings us near to his presence by the blood of Jesus Christ in the work of the cross, amen? And then he involves us in his work, in his ministry, in his kingdom projects, in his missional goals on earth. God involves us in those things. So we have that amazing redemptive picture of Christ through the person of Joshua working in the life of the Gibeonites. And now we're going to see in the text today that Joshua, again, is is a type of Jesus, is going to come to the defense of the Gibeonites and deliver them. He's going to come to their defense, and he's going to deliver them. So let's read this account starting in uh, chapter 10, verse 1. Now it came about when Adonai king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had captured Ai. And had utterly destroyed it just as he had done to Jericho and its king. So he had done to Ai and its king. And that the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were within their land. That he feared greatly because of Gibeon. uh, Or excuse me because Gibeon was a great city. Like one of the royal cities. And because it was greater than Ai and all of its men were mighty. Therefore, Adonai, Zedek of Jerusalem, sent word to Ahoram, uh, king of Hebron, and to Piram, king of that place, and to Japhia, king of that place, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us together attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the sons of Israel. Verse five. So the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon gathered together and went up, they with all their armies, and camped by Gibeon and fought against it. So here we see a conglomeration of nations made up of the Amorite people. These are, are the representatives of the southern population of the land of, king, of, of Canaan. You know, right now Joshua is on his central campaign. and this chapter, it merges into the southern campaign as we're going to see him get a great victory when we finish this chapter in the weeks to come over these kings of the southern region. Now, they, they were overseers of cities, but kings of cities. They were royal cities that were parts of bigger kingdoms. So this is a kingdom of the Amorites. These are Amorite people representing those cities. Notice that Jerusalem is one of them. This is the first mention of Jerusalem in the entire Bible. Jerusalem at this point was not a Jewish city. It is now in Jesus' name, and it will always be. But at this point, it was not. And it was in the hands of that king. And so that king gets together with four other Amorite kings to come against Gibeon. Because Gibeon made peace with Israel. And that was a treasonous act of sorts. You know what I mean? Gibeon should have been with the other Canaanite kings. He should have been with them to come against Israel. Israel was coming into their land to lay claim to it because the Lord gave it to them. And they were bummed out that Gibeon made peace with Israel. And Gibeon was a really big city. And it was full of mighty men and warriors. And so it was a real military hit to the other Canaanite nations when Gibeon made peace with Israel. And so this king says, this isn't good. This isn't good for us. Let's go and thrash the Gibeonites now. And now we see what happens in verse 6. Then the men of Gibeon sent word to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal, saying, Don't abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites that live in the hill country have assembled against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the valiant warriors. So they send a messenger. You know, in those days you didn't have instant messaging, or text messaging, or email, some guy ran from Gibeon, you know, to Gilgal, which is about 25 miles. Downhill, that's cool, it's downhill, it's a 4,000 foot descent, but someone ran to Gilgal, and said, hey Joshua, your brand new servants, the Gibeonites, that you made a treaty with, we're being attacked by these five Amorite kings, we want you to come up and protect us, we want you to help us, we want you to save us. And Joshua's going to respond. Joshua gets his mighty men, and he's going to make the 25-mile journey, uh, 4,000-foot ascent, and he's going to go deliver the Gibeonites. But we can only speculate as to exactly why Joshua did that. I don't believe that Joshua was obligated to do that. He did make a treaty with them, but that was just a peace treaty. There's nothing in Scripture that says that was a, a, a military defensive treaty that he was obligated to. There's nothing that says that. We could speculate, was it because of the treaty that he decided, yeah, well, I'll go up. You know what? He might have thought this way. This is perfect. I'm not going to help the Gibeonites. They tricked me. They bamboozled me. I'll let the Amorites wipe them out, and I'll be done with that problem. I'll be finished with the embarrassment. He could have thought that way. But for some reason, he goes up to honor them. Was it the treaty? We have no inclination in Scripture that would tell us it was for sure. Was it simply because the Gibeonites were now the servants of Israel? And so it was a matter of property. There are servants now. We don't want to lose that resource. And so we're going to go up and protect that resource. Maybe. We can only speculate. Was it because Joshua is a man of God and these were people in need? Maybe it was. Sounds good to us, doesn't it? Sounds like Jesus talking about uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And certainly they had come near and were made neighbors now to Israel. Perhaps Joshua was just a godly man and he goes up. But maybe it's some brilliant military strategy. Because the the previous protocol for Israel was to take one city at a time, lay siege to one city at a time. And laying siege to a city could take a great amount of time. It could happen shortly, but one at a time. They would go out from Gilgal, take a city back to Gilgal, regroup, go out to another city, and it was going to take a long time in the central and southern campaign to take the cities one by one. But now... All five Amorite kings of southern Canaan are gathered in one place at one time with their armies. I think that it's all above, all of the above. I think that Joshua goes made a treaty with these guys. I, I think the Lord would, would have me honor that, but I don't feel obligated to protect them. But then again, you know, th- they are neighbors and, and, and I'm able to protect them. They've asked me to save me, you know. Maybe I should represent the Lord in this. And, and they are valuable now to the ministry of the house of the Lord. You know, we, we, we've assigned them that work. And it's just incredible, he thinks. All the kings of the Amorites are together in one place. I'll go beat them all up at one time and not have to go to their individual houses in the future. I think that's a part of it. I think it was a a brilliant military moment for taking the land. Whatever the reason, we can only speculate. I want to draw your attention to this one point. All the valiant warriors were ready to go in the moment of need. It says in verse 7 that he got together his valiant warriors and they went. All the valiant men of God were ready in the moment of need. Our youth pastor, Ryan, and I, we study together because we teach the same things on on Sunday. And so we study together throughout the week. And this is one of our prayers this week when we came across this verse. I wrote it in my Bible that on 6907, I prayed that the men of reality would be ready in the moment of need. That the men of this church and the men, the Christian men of this coastline would be valiant warriors ready in the moment of need because we are engaged in spiritual battle. And the battle is over our children. It's over our youth. And it's over our marriages. It's over our community and our coastline and our nation. It's as real as this battle. It's more real. There's more at stake. And our prayer this week was that the men of God would be valiant warriors ready for action. So often we're caught up in all sorts of silly little sins. And we're so given over to laziness. I know we work hard, guys. Don't we work really hard? We do all sorts of stuff. And we're too tired to get up in the morning and seek the Lord. It's too much for us to read the Bible. It's too much to spend time in prayer. It's too much to have iron sharpening iron, men encouraging men. And we often neglect these things. And so we find ourselves in the moment of need, spiritually emaciated instead of acting as valiant warriors. And this is not the time to be spiritually emaciated. This is a time to be spiritually nourished and well fed and ready because we are living in the last days. We begin a wonderful opportunity by the Lord on this stretch of coastline at this moment in history to serve Him. I am not discounting the women. I'm just speaking to the men. We need to be valiant warriors that are ready. Whatever that means in your life, men do it. Now, they're going to go up with the valiant warriors. All the men were ready, and and they're going to deliver the Gibeonites. But, But the potent thrust of the story is not that Israel saves the Gibeonites. But it's that the Lord saves Israel. That's the potent thrust of the story. That the Lord is going to save Israel as they go to save the Gibeonites. Verse 8. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them. For I have given them into your hands. Not one of them shall stand before you. Notice what the Lord says. Don't be afraid. That means that there is a degree of fear and the men of Israel. The Lord doesn't say to you, don't be afraid if you're not afraid. Hello, duh. Don't be afraid. It means that there was a degree of fear. They knew these were five Amorite armies, and they were just one army, the army of Israel. They were going up now. They were going into battle, and the Lord is so wonderful to speak to them in that moment. Notice that they get a fresh revelation from God the moment they decide to do the right thing. I love that. You want to hear more from God? Obey God more. You want to hear more of the voice of God? Obey God more. It's wonderful. They do the right thing. They're heading into the battle. They're ready. They're being valiant warriors. And the Lord speaks and says, okay, guys, don't be afraid. I have given them into your hands. Past tense once again. I have already won the victory for you, says the Lord. This is a fourth time now that he says this in the book of Joshua in chapter 1 verse 3 he said to joshua wherever you walk i've already given you that land it was already there positionally it was already accomplished they just need to lay hold of it they just need to own it they just need to possess it he said it again concerning jericho i've already delivered it into your hands He said the same thing in Joshua 8.1 concerning I. I've given I and its king and its people into your hands. I love how good the Lord is to speak continually into Joshua and Israel's life. Over and over again. Don't be afraid. Be strong. Be courageous. I've already done it. I've already accomplished that. Positionally, it is finished. Just walk in the victory. Lord wants to do that same thing in our lives. It well, the so yeah, same thing in our lives. There's so many times where we're afraid, so many times where we're overwhelmed, so many times where we feel like failures, where we feel condemned, where we're intimidated, where we feel beat up. I know those feelings. We all experience those feelings. Won't you please get into the word of God and the presence of God and let him speak to you? He wants to speak to you. When you get into his word and draw into his presence, he wants to say to you, don't be afraid. I've already taken care of that for you. I'm going to work all things together for good. I've already forgiven you through the cross of Jesus Christ. I've already worked that thing. And then we're reminded of the sovereignty of God and the power of God and the goodness of God and the ability of God to save and deliver and preserve. And then we draw strength and courage from that thing. And we go into that place lowly and feeling defeated. And we open up the word and we draw near into the presence of the Holy Spirit. And we come out of that place feeling encouraged and victorious and strengthened and ready to face the day. Sometimes I need to do that just to face the day. Just to get out of bed sometimes I need to do it. Open up my eyes and go, Lord, I need you today just to get up out of this bed. And he's so faithful to meet me. When I say I need you, wants to do the same thing for you. Do not neglect that privilege. It is no small thing that we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace in the moment of need and receive help. That is no small thing. That is a wonderful and glorious thing. And so the Lord speaks to him and says, Joshua, it's already finished. Okay? I've already done it. All you need to do is walk in the victory. Is there any place... That the Lord has previously spoken to you about where he's given you victory and you just aren't walking in it. Any area of your life where, where the Lord has already spoken to you and you need to begin to trust him for it. Notice how swiftly they acted on God's promise. It says in the, verse nine, uh, in the next verse, verse nine, so Joshua came upon them suddenly by marching, marching all night from Gilgal. Just very swiftly. They purposed in their heart to do the right thing. They had a fresh revelation from God because they were seeking to obey the Lord. And then when the Lord spoke, they obeyed immediately. That's a great outline for success. They were ready. They responded. The Lord spoke to them prophetically. And then they, they, they responded again immediately. That's a great outline for success. They didn't wait around, okay, maybe tomorrow. I'll get my act tomorrow. I'll, I'll, I'll get it together tomorrow. I'll read my Bible on Tuesday. You know, it's Monday, this and that. No, they did it right away. They marched all night, 25 miles, uphill, 4,000 foot ascent. And they came upon the enemy suddenly. They didn't him. they didn't haw, huh? they went for it. When the Lord speaks to you, obey him. You say, when, Lord? Well, how about right now? Obey the Lord. Is there anything he's spoken to you in the past that you've let it go? Something he was calling you to do and you you, you never did it. God's got a second chance. Is pick it up. Any area where he's asked you to trust him, but you've wandered, you've wandered into the valley of disbelief, and now you're dismayed, you're concerned, you're confused, and you're afraid, come back to the Lord and trust him in that area. Move swiftly in the promises of God and, and watch the enemy eat it. Amen? <laughs> now watch what happens when they respond in, verse, uh, in uh, faith. Verse 10. And the Lord confounded the enemy before Israel. And the Lord slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, and pursued them by the way of the ascent of Beth-horon, and struck them as far as Ezekiah and Machadah. And it came about as they fled from before Israel while they were at the descent of Beth that the Lord threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than those whom the sons of Israel killed with the sword. I love it. I love it. Israel endeavored to obey the Lord. They did what the Lord told them to do, and then the Lord did more than they expected. That's biblical all day long. They did what the Lord told them to do, and then the Lord did more than they expected. I love that the Lord was the one who was doing the fighting. It says that the Lord confounded the enemy. means he brought confusion into their camp. The Lord confused them, and then it says there in verse 10, the Lord slew them, and the Lord struck them. And when they begin to run, the Lord threw big rocks at them. I love it. The Lord threw hailstones at them from heaven. Now, it says that more were killed with the hailstones than were killed with the sword of the Israelites. The Lord is the one that got the victory. I love the interplay here. We see the Lord doing a part and Joshua doing a part. Human and divine factors working together to achieve victory. The soldiers had to fight, but the Lord gave the victory. The victory is always dependent upon Jesus Christ. The victory is always dependent in your life and in my life. When we come against our enemy, Satan, the victory has to do with who Jesus is with what he's done upon the cross, with his promises and his word and his blood and his Holy Spirit. The victory is always according to who he is and what he is able to do. But that never means that we do nothing. God has chosen in his infinite wisdom to work through people, not independent of people. And so there will always be a role for the Christian. We're going to have to press in. We're going to participate. But the weight of the battle is the Lord's. The one who gives the victory is the Lord's. Some boast in chariots. We'll boast in the Lord our God. Amen. He's the one who gives us the victory. Now, I think it's cool that God threw hailstones. I just think that's an awesome thing. I, we already talked about the ramifications of, uh, of uh, the people of Canaan being wiped out. We talked about theologically and logically why that was mandated by God. Go back and review that in previous lessons if you're struggling with that or talk to me later. But I love the way God did it. He threw hailstones from heaven. Job is the oldest book in the Bible. And it says in Job, it predates Joshua certainly. It says in Job 38, 22 through 23. The Lord speaking to Job. Says Job, have you entered into the storehouses of snow? Or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of distress, for the day of war and battle? The Lord had the hail stored up for the day where he would be the defense of his people. These are the weapons of the divine warrior. God throwing hail from heaven. He did it in Exodus chapter 9. It was one of the plagues that came upon Egypt when they refused to let God's people go. Once again, God intervening on behalf of his people and he used hail. Exodus chapter 9. He's doing it here in Joshua. It will happen again in the tribulation period. Revelation 16:21 says, "And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail because its plague was extremely severe. The biggest recorded hailstone that's come down in America thus far according to my research online this week was seven inches in diameter. Just about the size of like a cantaloupe. You know what I mean? And people have died by being hit in the head with, with large ones. And uh, that they, when they're that size, seven inches in diameter, they travel at 100 miles an hour before they hit the ground. The Lord was chucking hail down on the enemy. And in the tribulation period, because men refused to repent. When you refuse to repent, there is nothing left but judgment. God prefers mercy over judgment. He wants everybody to receive his mercy. He doesn't want anybody to perish. He wants every single person to be saved. But you've got to come through the person of Jesus Christ who gave his life on the cross and rose on the third day conquering sin and death and the devil. You've got to come through the person of Jesus Christ. If you refuse to do that, if you refuse the mercy of God, then there's nothing left but judgment. God's not just going to turn his back on the whole thing and say, I didn't see, I didn't hear, I don't know. He sees all things, and he's a righteous judge. You can't just sweep it under the carpet. He wants to extend mercy to humanity. And certainly he had done so for centuries to the Canaanites. But they refuse, as people in the tribulation period will, as people do now. And when you refuse mercy... There's nothing left but judgment. He would rather give you mercy. But there was hail then, and there'll be hail in the future in the tribulation period. And the Lord here is fighting on behalf of Israel. That's a big point. The Lord loves to fight on behalf of his people. Some of you, as I prayed earlier in my opening prayer, are are involved in the battle of your life. Circumstances are so difficult, so overwhelming, it's so gnarly what you're up against. You need to know that you have an advocate. You need to know that you have a partner. You need to know that you have a defender and a deliverer who is Jesus Christ. The Lord is our defense just as he was and is the defense of Israel. The Lord is the defense of every single Christian. I love the way that the psalmist realized it in Psalm 27, 1, speaking of the Lord being his defense. He said, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? Psalm 28, verses 7 and 8. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in Him, and I am helped. Therefore, my heart exalts, and with my song I shall thank Him. The Lord is the strength of His people, and He is a saving defense to His anointed. Isaiah 25, 4. For thou has been a defense for the helpless, a defense for the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like the rainstorm against a wall. But the Lord is a defense. He's a deliverer. When you're in overwhelming circumstances, times of difficulty, times of need, scary moments, who do you call upon? You've got to call upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He is your defense. He wants to come to our aid. God wants to take care of his people. It's just that so often we relegate him to a secondary role in our lives. And we don't allow him to be Lord. He wants to be Lord. And the king is zealous and jealous for his people. He is our deliverer. 2 Samuel 22 verses 2 and 3. And he said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. Oh, I wish you'd make it that personal in your life. The Lord is my deliverer, my fortress, my rock. He's my shield, my stronghold, my refuge. He's my Savior. He is your Savior. He wants to be all those things to you. Psalm 18 verse 2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation. My stronghold. Oh, I love it. Psalm 40 verse 17. Since I am afflicted and needy, let the Lord be mindful of me. Thou art my help and my deliverer. Do not delay. Oh, my God. Is that your prayer? That the Lord is your help and your deliverer? In your moment of need. What? Whom? Are you calling upon? Where are you looking? The Lord is there and he's able. Psalm 144 verse 2. My loving kindness and my fortress, my stronghold, my deliverer, my shield, and him in whom I take refuge is the Lord. The Lord wants to be that for every single one of us. You see, Jesus does for you and I what the Lord did for the Gibeonites. He reconciles those of us who were once enemies of God. And then he brings us near. And then he makes us useful for his mission in this world. And then when things get difficult, he defends us. When we feel trapped, he delivers us. The Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? The way that he dealt with Israel then is the way that he wants to deal in your life today. Now, an interesting thing was happening now. Uh, the five Amorite kings and their armies are fleeing from Joshua and the Israelite army. And they're heading down this mountainside. They're just running for miles. The Lord is throwing down hailstones. But Joshua knows that there's a lot of people that are going to be wiped out. And that Joshua has to still engage in the battle. Joshua makes a quick calculation. He looks at where the sun is at in the sky how long the battle is going to take. He knows that in that day and age, when the sun went down, the battle stopped. They didn't fight into the night. They just, they just weren't equipped for that. And he says, if we're going to get the victory today, and that's key. They wanted the victory today. Amen. Don't you want the victory today? If we're going to get the victory today, we need more day. If we're going to get the victory today, it's starting to get dark. The sun is going down. We need more daylight. And so look at Joshua. I love this guy. Verse 12. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel. And he said in all the sight of Israel, okay, a public out loud prayer. O sun, stand still at Gibeon, and O moon at the valley of Aijalon So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. Is it not also written in the book of Jashar, which was an ancient book about the great exploits of Israel? It says, and the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. And there was no day like that before it or after it when the Lord listened to the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. Amen. That's a wonderful thing. I love the faith of Joshua. I love him as a leader. What do we need to get the victory today? I know what we need. We need more daylight hours. Lord, give us more sunlight. Sun, stand still in Jesus' name. Grr! I absolutely love it. The Lord stopped the sun for his people at this moment. The power of prayer. What does it say there? It says there's no day like that ever since where the Lord listened to vo- the voice of a man like that. The power of prayer. It says in James that Elijah is a man just like us, and he prayed for the rain to stop, and it stopped. He prayed for it to rain, and it rained again. If we knew the power of prayer, we'd pray a whole lot more. We just don't believe it. We don't really believe the Bible. We say we do. We pray lip service to it. We don't really believe it. The Bible teaches very clearly that prayer moves the hand of God, that prayer changes the world. Prayer changes the world, that God has mercy in places he wouldn't have mercy unless God's people called out and prayed for him. That's why we're having 30 days of prayer for the youth, you have not because you ask not. We're asking God to rock in the lives of the youth of this community. And so we're asking him in prayer to do so. If we really believe the Bible, we would pray so much more. Oh. If we really believe the word of God, that prayer changes things. Joshua, he, he believed. What do we need? More daylight. God, stop the sun. I love the faith that God, God stops the sun. Jesus said, If you had the faith of a mustard seed, a little tiny seed, you could say to this tree, be uprooted and moved, and it'll be moved. Say this mountain, be moved, and it'll be moved. Just a little tiny bit of faith. Joshua had faith that the Lord could do it. The power of prayer and the power of God that he's able to do that. What's a neat insight is this, is that part of the Canaanite religion was worshiping the sun and the moon. So it's like Joshua is making a direct attack against their false gods, their wrong concept of a God, as, as the God of Israel's chucking hailstones. The God of Israel's throwing down hailstones, and Joshua in his prayer comes against what they worshiped. Oh, I know that you guys worship the moon and the sun. You know what? Stop. And God stops their gods, so to speak, in their tracks. And doesn't Ephesians 1.22 say that all things are subject to Christ Jesus? All things are subject to him? Now, of course, there's a lot of people that don't believe this story. And that's fine. That's their problem, really. That God didn't really stop the sun. I mean, it didn't really actually literally happen. And so they come up with other ideas. Oh, th- there was an eclipse that took place, and that's what it was. Or the clouds covered the sun. Or this is a very popular theory. The, God caused the, the, the rays of the sun to refract, and it made it seem like there was more light for longer. Or God just so strengthened Joshua that he just thought it was a longer day. He just felt like, oh, what a long day, and I have so much strength. And I don't understand why people think that way. Others have said, look, it says that the sun stood still. That's clearly a scientific mistake because the sun doesn't move around the earth causing day and night, but the earth rotates around the axis of the sun. Wait a minute. Come on, use your brain here. When you look up in a scientific book, an almanac, you go to look when, when, when the earth is going to rotate enough that we don't see the sun anymore. What do they call that? The sunset. They call it the sunrise. It's not because the sun is going around the earth. Oh, here it comes. Oh, there it goes. The sun is going around us. We know that. It's because the earth is moving and it causes day and night. The sun is moving in the, you know, in the galaxies. But the earth is the one that causes day and night. All motion in the galaxy is relative to wherever you are. And so, there has to be ground zero and observation point by which we depict any other movement, and so we are moving uh fifteen hundred miles uh, how how fast Ryan a little bit over a thousand miles an hour. The earth is moving like this, and then how fast in our rotation sixty seven thousand miles an hour around the sun, oh wow. <laughs> So we're moving a whole lot, from, but from our point of observation, you know what I mean? We say the sun sets and the sun rises. We read that in, in, in scientific books. It's not a scientific contradiction between Scripture and science here that it says the sun stood still. He's writing from the point of observation. We would say the same thing. We would say the sun stopped moving if the day was 12 hours longer, when in reality what probably happened was that the earth stopped moving or that it slowed in its rotation so that a full day was no longer 24 hours, but it was 48 hours. Now, I have no problem with these sorts of things because I'm what you call a big godder. (laughs) A big godder. You know, like I'm also a pre-tribber, and I'm a big godder. I'm a literalist. I'm a fundamentalist. Whatever you want to call me, I'm all those things. I'm a big godder. I believe in a big God who can do anything. I believe when the Bible says that God is omnipotent, all powerful, that he's all powerful. I don't qualify that by anything. I believe that God is able to do these. I have no problem with God stop the sun, the earth, whatever. I have no problem with I'm a big godder. Other people, they're little godders. And that is their big problem. (laughs) I've got no problem with this whatsoever. Psalm 74 set the stage in verses 16 and 17. It says, both day and night belong to the Lord. He made the starlight and the sun. The Lord is the one who set the boundaries of the earth, and he's the one who makes both summer and winter. He's the one that did it all. Isaiah 40 verse 12 says of the Lord that he measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and he marked off the heavens by the span. Span's an ancient measuring tool. It's the span of your hand. It's from here to here. And that God looks at the entire universe and goes, how big is it in relation to me? Uh, It's about the span of his hand. God holds the whole universe in his hand. You know what it's like? It's like a remote control for you. You guys are very familiar with remote controls. Remote control fits right in your hand, right? And whenever you want, pause. The whole universe is in God's hand. Whenever he wants, pause. You wanna stop the sun, pause, what? Okay, maybe it wasn't pause, maybe slow-mo. He wants to slow-mo the earth, slow-mo. The whole span of his hands, it's all in his hands. Book of Colossians says that all things are held together by Christ Jesus. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. You know the song. It's awesome. The most theologically true song ever to come out of the church. He's got the whole world in his hands. God started the motion of the universe. He's the one who maintains the motion of it, and he could change it or postpone it or stop it anytime he wants. I believe it. I'm a big Godder. I like what Warren Wiersbe says. He says, If God can't perform the miracle described in Joshua 10, then he can't perform any miracle and is imprisoned in his own creation, unable to use or suspend the very laws he built into it. I have a difficult time believing in that kind of a God you got a real theological problem when you don't believe that the Lord can stop the sun for a day. How did he do it? We don't know exactly. I, I, I like what Schaefer says about it. He says, how did God do it? We don't know. We might visualize it either of two ways. The earth could have slowed or the earth could have tilted, making the conditions in Israel like those in the north where the sun doesn't set. There could be other ways that we may not be able to visualize. However it was accomplished, the Bible says that God worked in space-time history to fight for the Israelites. That's a potent point. However he did it, he did it for love. Oh, I like that. However he did it, and it's beyond our understanding. Hello, that's why it's called a miracle. (laughs) However he did it, he did it for love. Have you ever heard the saying, I, I, I'd do anything for you. I'd stop the world for you. God did it for his people. That's where that comes from, I think. God did it for Israel. It wasn't normal. Should we expect to see that the same thing happen today? I don't know. It wasn't normal. It says that there was no day like that before it, and there hasn't been a day since. It was an absolutely unique day. And still yet, so many Christians have problem accepti- accepting what the Bible clearly says, that God did that. They, they, they just can't believe that there was such a unique day. Well, wait a minute. How can you be a Christian and not believe that God is able to give us a unique day? Our whole faith is based upon a unique day and a unique sun the person of Jesus Christ, the unique son of God, and the unique event of his resurrection from the dead on a Sunday. Our whole faith is based on a unique day and a unique son. So why should we have a problem believing this? I don't have a problem. The fact is God intervenes in time, space, and history to accomplish his purposes on behalf of his people. Scripture's view is that history and nature are parts of God's created order and God controls them. Either by the laws that he put in motion, just continuing in their government, or when he manipulates those laws, which is called a miracle. Either way, God is governing And God created those things. Now here's a problem with humanity and even many Christians. Humans like to think that we're somehow separate from the nature that God governs. And humans like to think that, that all these other things are affected by God's government. But we as people, we make history. That's what we like to think. But you see, Joshua 10 calls us to wrestle with such an arrogant understanding of humanity. We have a God who holds all things in His hands and He intervenes in history and He makes history and He raises nations up and He brings them down according to His sovereignty. And it's arrogant of humanity to think that we are not subject to the government of God and His intervention in our lives. We are. And He does awesome things in the battles of our lives. Israel was in the fight of their life and God moved Some of you are in the fight of your life, and you need to have faith that God will move. God wants to move. God wants to deliver. God wants to redeem. God wants to restore. He wants to do it so badly. 2 Chronicles 16.9 says, that the eyes of the Lord go to and fro about the earth, looking for someone whom he may strongly support, whose heart is fully his. The Lord is looking to do awesome things. He's like waiting to do awesome things. You know when you're really good at something and you want to show off, and you're just waiting for someone to watch, and then they look, and you're like, ah, whatever you do really well. I didn't want to give away what I think I do well there. <laughs> the Lord is waiting to do awesome things. He's just looking for someone who's, whose heart is turned toward him. Who would say like, like Jehoshaphat said in Second Chronicles 29, Lord, I don't know what is going on, but my eyes are on you. The Lord is looking for people with that heart attitude to do awesome things for. We have got to know in these last days, when we're engaged in a radical spiritual battle, We have to know that God is able to provide resources that exceed expectations and that we will be in situations in life where we need to call upon the name of the Lord and that when we call, God will listen and God will fight. You must know that. God hears your voice just the same as he heard Joshua's voice. He hears it just the same and he loves you just as much and he wants to intervene in your life. And Joshua had an awesome outline for experiencing victory. He believed God's promise. He employed a sound strategy by traveling all night and coming upon the enemy quickly. And then he called upon the Lord in the heat of the battle. He believed God's promise. I've already given you the victory. So he responded to it. He had a a sound strategy. I'm going to obey the Lord right away. And when the battle got gnarly, he called upon the Lord knowing that that was a place of unlimited resource. And I love, once again, and here's where we end, the redemptive picture of the Lord working through this Gibeonite situation. It was a huge blunder on the part of Joshua. A huge blunder to be deceived by the Gibeonites. But when he did the right thing, he invited God's redemptive work into it. And now look what's happened. If there hadn't been that scenario with the Gibeonites... If he hadn't invited God's redemptive work into it, he would have had to have gone and taken taken all these cities one by one. Now, because of what happened there, all of these Amorite kings were gathered together in one place at one time, and they got the victory in one day. What would have taken months in one day? That's God working all things together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. That's Romans eight twenty eight in action. God works all things together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. He made a bad mistake. He began to do the right thing and so invited God into the situation and God redeemed it incredibly for the Gibeonites and he redeemed it wonderfully for Israel. God is so good, he always works on both ends. Have you been blowing it? Just start to do the right thing and invite God into your mess and watch him work. You in the midst of the battle of your life, you might need more light in your life. You feel like it's getting dark? Do the same thing Joshua did. Call upon the light. But call upon Jesus Christ, the S-O-N. He's the light of the world. You need more light in your life? Call upon Jesus. You, you need longer time in his presence and light? Call upon Jesus today. Jesus said in John eight twelve, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. You feel like you're in a dark place? You call upon Jesus Christ. You start to obey him and light will come into your life. Amen? Thank you so much, Lord, for teaching us these things. Thank you so much for the way that you moved on behalf of Israel. And now, Lord, we would just have the boldness to ask that you'd move the same way in our little lives. That you'd do the same sort of stuff in our lives, Lord. That you would just come and do awesome things. So we invite you now, Holy Spirit. Father, we want whatever is in your awesome heart for us. We want it all those beautiful thoughts you have toward us. We want you to work them. Lord, help people to come in humility that have made a mess, help them. Help them, Lord, to come and just say, Lord, here's my mess. Bring light into this darkness. You're the deliverer, you're the redeemer. You're our defender and our strength. You're our righteousness. You're our strong tower. You're our high place and our hiding place. Who moved we in heaven but you? We're your little messy people, Lord. We ask that you have mercy on us and do beautiful things in our lives. If you need help today, prayer team is up here. Come and get some prayer. Don't forget about the power of prayer and the power of God. If you need more light in your life, just draw near to Jesus. Come get on your face do time with Him. In Jesus' name.